Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 88. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we are joined by Fred Sharman, designer, researcher, and assistant professor at Morgan State School of Architecture and Planning in Baltimore. His name is also surely familiar to longtime ArcConnectors out there, and to those of you who read his recent piece that we just published on ArcConnect, entitled Architects, If You Don't Start Disrupting Urbanism, Silicon Valley Will Do It For You. Fred, it's great to have you back on on uh, our podcast. Thanks for having me on, y'all. I wish it was on a more uplifting day. Uh, <laughs> today, we, we're recording this on Wednesday, the, the morning after the election. And I don't think any of us on this show right now, um, any of any of the hosts here, were expecting or looking forward to this type of outcome. So maybe before we get started, we can all maybe share some thoughts about where we're at. So guests privilege. Fred, would you like to start? or, <laughs> or uh... <laughs> You don't have to. As, as I was putting together notes on the piece, which was written before the election, I was realizing how many of the same issues, I think, came up during and during the run-up to the election and then like crazy on election day watching the returns. Um, so I'm looking forward to, to talking about that a little bit, too, hopefully. It totally relates, I would say. I, I tweeted a couple things today. Christopher Hawthorne wrote that there's a bias against cities embedded in the structure of the Electoral College, which I think is true. Bruce Katz wrote that we are in a global battle between nationalism, which he defines as being very nativist, and urbanism, which is diverse, pragmatic, affirmative, and futurist. So to me, the you know that whole notion of urbanism and cities, it all relates really strongly to this election. And I will say that I'm I'm still breaking out into tears pretty frequently throughout the day. <laughs> Ken? <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, had this, I had this feeling that I didn't really share because I've probably mentioned this before. I grew up poor. My mom had to raise four kids after getting divorced from my father. So she was on welfare. We were on welfare and food stamps. So I know, I, I recognized, I knew from, a, from an early you know, point in my life that I was what poor was and what disenfranchised poor white people were feeling because I was one of them. And although I was born into my skin and that's there's certainly comfort in that, I started to sense that the idea that cultural elitism was becoming central in my mind that this candidate was not talking to poor white people in the way respectfully. And I think if you look at this election, there was all this swinging and punching at Trump. And just like there was all this swinging and punching at Obama. And what happened? Both times they missed the target and hit the people supporting the candidate. So there was this, for me, I just, I felt this unease because I'm like, I know a lot of working class white people. I grew up with them. Uh, my friends I back east are mechanics, they're plumbers, they're electricians, they're people who deal with trade in their hands and their skills in that area. My grandfather grew up working in a, a car factory for Buick. I mean, so when they were hitting Trump, they really weren't hitting Trump. They were hitting the, the deplorable thing was probably the single biggest reveal of the entire election. That moniker really stuck and it was really, I saw it, I'm like, that was a big mistake because it really told you where the Democrats were coming from. They didn't see the people who were supporting Trump as having value and it, that Trump was a vessel for everything that they resented about educated elite Democrats. And, 
you know, it's interesting. The chickens have come home to roost, as uh, Malcolm X would say. And um, I've been seeing a lot of posts today on Facebook about why are you surprised? And not from to me, but the general consensus has been that white people are surprised about this racism. I was never surprised about this racism. I was never, never, ever surprised about it. The past three or four years have really told me that it, it wasn't gone. I think what I'm saddened by is that, you know, I didn't, I didn't do enough. No, I was stop afraid. It. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think what I'm saying Don't blame is yourself. That, no, I think what I'm saying is that I was running away from that past. I mean, I, at 20 years old, I decided I was going to go to college because I got tired of working in an auto parts store. I said, this is not the life I want to live for myself. This is not my future. I do not see this as being my future. I can't, I can't see it. And I said, I just want to be an architect. So I decided to stop being an auto mechanic and start taking control of my life. I took responsibility for it. And so when 2008 hit and the economy tanked, I freaked the fuck out. I freaked the fuck out because I was out of a job very fast. But the one thing I remember was it what brought me out of the darkness at that point was thinking about my mom who worked this is not hyperbolic. She worked 20 hour days, five days a week. She went to work in the post office part time at night in the annex. And then during the day she was home health aid. So she got four hours of sleep and she managed to do all of that, raise four kids and still had to get public assistance. And I saw 2008 and I was desperate. I was, I, and then I remembering that I said, I can do this. My mom was single I mean, that realization that this small moment of, of, of despair, my mom dealt with it for four years and worked her ass off. And, you know, I think about that now and I go, I, I totally was running away from my past and I was running away from what everybody else is dealing with. And, you know, I didn't want to be around those people because I, I left that world. And that's why I say, you know, I, I, I think there, we share responsibility in, in looking at this moment and saying, those people fix our cars. They fix our pipes in our house. They roof our homes. They shovel our streets. They pick up our trash. They have value. And they have value because they contribute to our society. And, and I think we miss that big time, bigly, <laughs> in this election. And, you know, I, I woke up today knowing that nothing changed in my life. As desperate as I feel right now, nothing changed for me. I, I, in fact, I, I think my status has been elevated. Because I'm a white male and, and this world is built around me and I have a reaffirming president-elect who's going to affirm that whiteness and that maleness and misogyny. <laughs> grab, it, and, grab it by the pussy, yeah, Ken. You can yeah, do it. And <laughs> so I felt, I felt like, you know, my world is not going to change. <laughs> but I'm worried about the, I'm worried about the people whose lives will be affected by this. And, and I've been seeing, you know, Mitch McEwen's been posting, don't worry about us. We've been dealing with this shit for, you know, centuries. You know, we've been dealing with it here and you got to go fix yourselves and fix your issues and fix your people. This is your people. This is your problem. So, yeah, I said a lot. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> No, but, but it's but it's making it so clear about how this has just been so polarizing on so many levels and people are really reacting to the setup expectations being catered to one particular audience and then 
everyone else being surprised or perhaps not surprised only because that audience wasn't them. And I feel like being in California, we had th- this kind of weird trade-off where a lot of our state measures that were really important for us did go through. And I'm on like a state level, very proud of what ended up happening with we got some more revenue from taxes being increased for transportation planning for public transit in the state, which is really important. And in LA County, there's a homeless measure that passed as well as legalized marijuana and all these other things that kind of bring a positive future light to the state, even despite the overall abysmal other predictions that are coming out nationally. And it's this very schizophrenic feeling of like being so aware of that filter bubble of being in that state. And yet also knowing that that is the stuff that will continue being the most prevalent and most felt in the near future is the stuff that is on the state. And I will be insulated by the other stuff, even though I know it's going to be pretty dire. So it's it's a very strange feeling of just being completely within and without the conversation at the same time. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the there's no comfort in this. Um, <laughs> I think I think most of us don't ascribe to the idea of states' rights, but that's what's going to happen. And that's what you're going to get. You're going to see a lot of pullback. And this is what I was fighting last night. Emotionally, I was fighting. I'm like, do I close my circle? Do I close my circle? Do I, do I not extend myself beyond my friends and my family and my, and my immediate community that, that supports and validates who I am and what I believe in? Do I not? And, and I think that's the wrong thing to do. And I think I still believe that's the wrong thing to do. As much as my emotion is drawing me to that and my fear is, is taking me there, I think it's the wrong thing. And I think the idea that I'll admit it, I was one of the you know people who when Sandy hit and they took out Jersey and it took out a lot of the East Coast and they didn't want to fund the repairs for New Jersey. Every time a fucking tornado took down a, a town in Oklahoma, I was like, fuck you with your money. I ain't giving you no fucking money. It's your state. You fix the fucking problem. When there's earthquakes down there from fracking, I'm like, fuck you and your frack. I don't give a fuck about your frack. I just, so I emotionally I'm leading from that. And I know like everybody wanted Obama to be the black president. White people on the conservative side thought he was going to be the black president because it reaffirmed what they thought about his blackness and white people, white liberals wanted him to be John Schaff because he was going to fucking take care of the man. <laughs> so he was in a rock and, between a rock and a hard place. And I just said, I have to step away from my what I, my emotion wants for him to be to me. And I just need him to be the president that we need. And I'm trying to take a part of that, a little bit of that advice and go, your emotions cannot dictate your decisions. And I'm trying to step away from that. And it's hard. <laughs> Amelia used the word filter bubble. And you're, you're talking about, you know, questioning whether or not you close your circle, you know, which is that's that's social media language. And, and that's yeah. the these are the consequences of these large scale filter bubbles that I think, you know, we've built around ourselves that are either closed or open. And, and this is why, you know, I think we should be paying a lot of attention when the same people who, you know, when they use this word, who architected those structures that create yeah. these filter bubbles now want to architect actual physical space from scratch oh. that people are going to be using and living in. Yeah. The direct line to to Silicon Valley through these things and and Fred, as you mentioned before, like you have kind of found a lot of these parallels already just in researching the piece and researching the to, before coming on today. But there's also just the direct kind of aligning themselves with certain people in Silicon Valley. Of course, Peter Thiel famously was an early backer and a very confident, consistent backer of Trump. And it's he just, was a delegate. Yeah. yeah. So it's just, I, I don't know. Do you do you have any, do you feel that in particular this initiative with Y Combinator, do you think that they will be reacting in their own initiatives to this new political climate as a kind of galvanization of their own means or in fact kind of 
maybe a depression of it. Well, I think I think we see in language like the the disclaimer on the initial Y Combinator announcement that says, you know, no, no, wait, wait, wait. Before you jump in, we're we're building this city for all people. Uh, they use the phrase tech people and non tech people, as if that's that's all people, right? There are tech people and there are non tech people. Polarized <laughs> country. There's not only filter bubbles inherent in in how you know bases thought pre thought before it's built, but. There's a filter bubble so impenetrable that the filter bubble itself is filtering out the existence of filter bubbles. So there's a question of, of, of who the city is going to be for, but that's not even, that's not even allowed in the language that I think some of these startups are talking about cities with. But it's presumed that, of course, this will be open to everyone. Of course, universality is possible, which as we know, it's not possible. It's not possible on the internet. It's not possible in design. It's very difficult in design. Build neutral space, but there's this preconceived assumption that that will be possible. And if we can only figure out the right algorithm this time, we can do it. There's also some really strange kind of rhetorical baton passing happening where in the Y Combinator circles are in the tech circles, this idea of like, we are tech exceptionalists. I'm going to be totally stereotyping for the purpose of this argument, but say that everyone in... in I think that's fair. I think we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) So in in Y Combinator, there's this idea of like the tech exceptionalism where, of course, we can solve this problem. Of course, this problem still exists to be solved because we haven't yet tried to solve it. Because we haven't yet tried. Yes. And so now it's ours to kind of attach ourselves to. And, you know, it's too bad that those urbanists and architects haven't yet kind of done that yet. So I guess it's our turn to kind of come in. And and of course, and righteously, architects and urbanists have largely satirized, made fun of, completely mocked, rejected, just absolutely been insulted by this kind of thinking. But at the same time, in their own circles, have raised this concern before that the architecture and urbanist dialogue and the actual profession may in fact still also be a little bit elitarian and too exclusive uh-huh. to the uh-huh. point of not of of course also having some of the same guiding lights of wanting to make cities for everyone wanting to do these things and falling into those same pitfalls and, and so it's this very tragic kind of cyclical thing of the urbanists already having experienced the same pitfalls as what the technologists are now thinking that they are going to be the ones to solve but that the communities even if they work together on the premises that that Y Combinator has set out are ultimately destined to fail because it's just not something that really anyone so far can really seen as possible. Um, so I think there's this huge irony of the discourse going back and forth and that how again as we even saw with the election there's this huge discord and divide and mistrust between the perceived elite and the perceived everyone else. And there's also the, a generalized mistrust of, of expertise in, in general, too, whether that's expertise in, in governing or in planning. And, and of course, you know, these, these systems are imperfect and the experts have failed us in, in governing and planning and architecture, as we all know. But it's still, I, I think, yeah, I'm beginning to see the, a re-entry to, to that kind of uh, attitude that I think Ken was, was mentioning, that we are not served by scorn for the tech people, right? We, we can't, we can't mm-hmm. apply a filter bubble that says, oh, of course, you think that way because all tech people think that way. We have to engage on those terms. We have to find new terms for engagement one way or another because this is going to happen and this is where power and influence has is, is been shifting towards. But so but the thing that struck me the most about the entire article was the fact that, that there was this little plea for, hey, if you know of any open, available greenfield sites we can use to build our new cities, let us know. <laughs> like, why are they not willing to take on the reality of an existing city and apply these concepts? Why does it have to start from this point of, you know, blank slate, 
starting from the ground up. That seems to me like a huge blind spot. It seems like an appeal to what otherwise might be an analogy towards science of just like, oh, well, we want to like isolate variables as discreetly as possible. So the only way to do that is just like have a green field, which is completely blank and therefore Mm -hmm. nothing, Mm -hmm. no other variables can come in and influence us. Plus also the idea that what is so fascinating to me about this, this idealism of of this new cities project. And we haven't, we haven't even spoken about the so-called talent behind this yet that Fred's article (laughs) is so much involved with, but just the fact that the conversation of the proposal doesn't really say whether or not they are going to also consider the processes by which the city is built as distinct from the form that that city ultimately takes. So it's like, are they still going to engage with like your friendly neighborhood developer to like have this stuff done? Like it's impossible to isolate the city in that fashion or the economic systems that come and intersect to create the city. And that's kind of, in a way, the thing that is most necessary to disrupt, right? Is like, that's the thing that they might actually have, be able to shake a stick at is that is paying attention instead of the form and the, and the structures and the like, the city once it already exists, looking at instead how the mechanisms that are currently in place come together to build the cities that we do have. And that's where shit goes wrong. That's where all the moving parts come in and corruptions happens and redlining and all this other horrible stuff that is ultimately what everyone is trying to solve or everyone is trying to disrupt to a, a better position. This is why um, one of my favorite writers is Keller Easterling, um, because she's really good at, at pointing out the kind of absurdity inherent in the attitudes that we all take for granted, you know, even our own attitudes as, as architects and designers and our ambitions. But she also always, in, in her writing and her, uh, her advice as a designer, is always kind of encouraging us to stick with it and play along. So, you know, she uses frameworks from like improvisational theater and stand-up comedy to kind of get involved with those situations, whether it's getting involved with a developer and uh, real estate and economic uh, transactional system or getting involved with the computer in a different way, getting involved with technology, which I think that that really gives me hope. I mean, I think back to, you know, some of the the earlier days of Archonnect, which of course is also is an architecture and technology startup company, right? And that's where I, I met a lot of people who were interested in both people like Brian Boyer and Molly Steenson who are still writing about this topic and, and engaging with this topic. There are a lot of people who, who came out of the first wave of interest in, web, interest in the web and in technology and got really interested in architecture too. And they got engaged with architecture. You know, they did this sort of yes and method instead of the oppositional, no, don't trust the expert. You know, they went to talk with the experts and now they're the experts, which has been really great. So Fred, there's sort of a, I think a a joke comment here that I'm about to make as well as maybe a deeper answer to it is if the notion is, as Keller Easterling says, that we should be like in some way playing along, do we just need to do, I can has cheeseburger memes for buildings? Is that, you know, and for, for, for the city, for what we want in our collective coming together as humans to live in physical space? Or, you know, what's the playing along that then actually brings about some kind of change? Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm amateur sort of cultural historian. And so, you know, I think it it is kind of funny and appropriate and maybe interesting to see what the guy who bought the ICANN has cheeseburger cat picture website will now do in cities because, you know, there's, there's, one thing that, that memes can do is, is kind of become the, you know, the, the figure of the funny animal character becomes this kind of charismatic megafauna. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, that we otherwise wouldn't necessarily engage with. So, you know, like 
save the polar bears, you know, makes you think about the whole complex system of the Arctic and how it's changing. So, you know, if, if we can apply that kind of thinking to cities, and I think, you know, maybe even connect it to some of the things that, that architects are now becoming interested in, again, things like large-scale iconography and recognizable references, you know, this in this kind of neo-POMO revival that we see <laughs> happening in different ways in architecture right now. So a public-facing, you know, architecture, a public-facing city that is cute and funny and relatable, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of an exciting thing, you know, so it might be worth playing along with this idea of memes and architecture and urbanism and seeing what it can do, seeing what it can accomplish from the architect's end too. And there is something to be said with just the fact that these people are incredibly powerful. I mean, I know we can like kind of elbow like them yeah, they have side. a lot of money too so yeah. that's good right <laughs> no but i mean i i hate to say i don't mean it as like i i really don't want the comment to become extrapolated to think like well you should just play along with whatever fascist totalitarian state you know like there's ways to extrapolate this too far but just to say the intentions might be off whatever they are but if there's a way to engage with this it is certainly to engage with it instead of just ignore it and it's a very easy analogy or or discredit it very easy analogy to just like the voting process that we've just saw which was like the idea of not voting as protest is not true it not voting is surrender i'm paraphrasing someone else but i I can't remember exactly who it is right now but that you can't just opt out and take that to mean whatever you want it to mean instead this play along that is the more active thing that is the way you can actually determine the terms yourself and have some kind of i love the stand-up comedy or the uh, improv comedy analogy because it totally is that and speaking of meme culture if we've if any political and media climate has shown us the power of meme culture it has been this last election cycle. I've been really fascinated with the whole Pepe the Frog meme, which I don't know if you guys have have also been tracking, but how something can go from a, in 2015 or 2014, one of the most popular memes on Tumblr to 2016, an officially recognized hate symbol by the Anti-Defamation League. That is insane. Like that is just absolutely crazy. And the fact that it's just, that it's a cartoon frog, like it is literally a cartoon frog. Well, I mean, this, this brings up an interesting point. Van Jones, I was, when I was watching uh, the election coverage yesterday, Van Jones made a a comment about how there have been many presidential wins throughout history that that coincide with media sea changes. You know, like FDR was an underdog, but because of his awareness of the radio medium, he took advantage of that and won. And then same thing with JFK and TV, mm-hmm. Obama with the Internet. And what we're seeing right now is that Trump knows social media and he knows reality TV. He knows this culture we live in very well. And that is what Van Jones, at least, was crediting to, you know, for his win. And what we're seeing now, too, I mean, we're giving the job of redesigning cities to a meme maker. I mean, that's that's where we are right now in our world. I mean, that's I think I think we're we found ourselves in this kind of instant gratification, kind of whatever feels good and feels right kind of cultural movement. But what's so freaking depressing about that is to go back to what I think is a point in the article that you make, Fred, is that it's user generated content. So it's it's people just coming up with things. These are people who don't have expertise. You know, they frequently they don't have any kind of expertise or deeper understanding or academic background or whatever training. And we're talking about taking that as as important as real research or. Yeah, I I find that fact that it's user generated content building a city, I find that somehow really parasitic. 
I don't know. Extractive. I think that's that's what we're seeing. You know, is kind of the, the base organizational structure for a lot of these companies. Is, is disruption is is really just extraction, and it's scorched earth extraction. It is. It's like again, like what Ken was saying. It's, it's the, the fracking which will leave the earthquakes. It's pulling you know micro value from millions of tiny little bits of unpaid labor that that are then recuperated at a larger scale, and then all the you know once the labor is harvested, that field is left behind and move on to somewhere else. And that's the you know. <laughs> That's the like, yeah. make the company, build it up, sell, and then go, you know, like Ben, who did wander, wander the earth for, <laughs> for you, <Yeah. laughs> which is also scary when, when you think about that kind of attitude, especially when it seems so unexamined applied to uh, urbanism and applied to the, the construction of places where people live. Just to play the devil's advocate, though, I mean, we have seen there are precedents of of industries being disrupted by Silicon Valley. I mean, specifically Uber, Airbnb, you know, these these uh, startups completely transformed industries using uh, applying an approach that was way too new for the established industry to apply. And I've never I've never thought that Airbnb and Uber represent the final reasonable, feasible solution. I think, I think what, what it represents still now uh, from the time that they started until, until where we are right now, kind of an idealistic alternative to the more traditional industries that, that they've been disrupting. Eventually we're going to find a middle ground. Um, but it seems, I mean, like driving people, you know, from A to B and, and providing a place to stay overnight is, is a much simpler task than redesigning a city. But it seems like there is an opportunity to apply technology and new ways of thinking to areas or aspects of, of urban planning and, and city making that could then be brought, you know, together with planners and, and appropriate specialists that, that have much more experience. I don't know. Yeah. And it's fair. I mean, there, there's a, a strong historical thread running through the history of architecture and urban design that, that has that has tried to do that too. So I think linking up, you know, linking up the, the lineage of, of the thinking of Yona Friedman and Cedric Price and, and Molly Steenson writes about Nicholas Necroponti and even Christopher Alexander, you know, linking all that back up now to this new energy, this new interest that is is coming in from Silicon Valley in urbanism is also really exciting. You know, it's kind of the dream of the 60s is alive in Silicon Valley, <laughs> in terms of architecture, at least. But it is troubling to not see any awareness of that yet in the language, again, that, that's being used. There's no understanding that, that architects and urbanists have been excited about this stuff for, for decades, too. And there's a lot of, of good groundwork laid you know, in, in these thinkers and writers and, and designers that, hey, you know, you all should maybe let us recommend some books to you or something. <laughs> yeah. So that is, that is, I agree, Paul, that is really exciting. I think there is an adjustment period, you know, there is that back and forth of like, okay, an industry has been disrupted. Now let's all rethink what it really is at its essence. And that's exciting that, we're, that, you know, we always have the opportunity to do that. But it's exciting that someone else is interested in doing that too. And I hope they do it with us, not for us. Yeah. I mean, it's also scary. I mean, like what we see right now, we've got a, a new president that has never even acted as a politician before, you know, and who knows what that's going to turn into. I mean, it's if it's done right. I mean, I, uh, I'm i not I'm not I don't really have much, much faith to uh, to get towards <laughs> Trump right now. But I mean, if if we can align forces, I mean, there's something really great about bringing in a completely fresh perspective on an issue that is complex and difficult to to manage. It just has to be handled appropriately. I'm just wondering what the actual project is for Y Combinator here, like, because 
as far as I know, their role as an incubator is not to run their own ideas. Their role as an incubator is to kind of gather talent that they have an investor expectation in as investors and nurture that talent to the point of then releasing it into the world. And I don't know whether or not this New Cities initiative is kind of going to guide their investor goals as or their like role as an incubator to then offer or encourage startups in that role, or whether they actually then see themselves as the so-called like rulers of the city. Because again, like it's like, how will this actually get built? Will it be the same like capitalist methods that allow them to still be in control of all of the things that then allow things to be built? Or whether, as as I think Paul said, like will, or and, and Fred, you also came in and said like, whether or not they will do it with the people in the way that it is not something that like the disruption comes in the means of who owns the stuff that makes the cities possible. So whether it's like a, a new model of like Uber is great for disrupting like taxis and making it easy and cheap to get from A to B, but it would be really great if the workers were paid better instead of all the money going to Uber. So whether or not there's a way of creating a system that is self-contained towards that capital that doesn't just always go back to the owner would be like another thing that I feel that the New Cities Initiative might <laughs> might actually be a, a more like admirable th- uh, goal for them to be attaching themselves to instead of just making it the new mm, goal of their uh, startups. I mean, that. It, it, sorry, to me, to me, that it, it kind of goes back to Paul, your comment about expertise and that new thought is exciting. Bringing in someone with a fresh perspective is exciting. But the point of expertise and in our case as architects, and I sound like such an old lady here, registration is that there is a responsibility that you have a reputation at stake and that you're working towards something that will help that reputation and not ruin your reputation within your field and then your community, right? So fresh eyes are good, but they have to have a sort of moral compass about them, ethical compass about them, I think. And that's that's maybe what worries me a little. Yeah, the lack of any type of accountability ref- or uh, yeah, I mean they, they haven't they haven't mentioned anything about working with established experts in this area. I mean from the way that the way that's described it sounds like they're just trying to reinvent the wheel. Without acknowledging that the wheel has been studied and studied and studied exactly. for millennia. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean in both both your comments that I've, uh, Amelia and Donna it, it makes me think of of the way and the kind of impenetrability of some of this language from outside because you know, what are they what are they going to do and and you know how are <laughs> Are they going to do it? There's a, a lot of enthusiasm, but there's a, a, a it's really thin on substance, which is amazing. That seems to be a common thread that runs through Silicon Valley in general, which which it also makes you in, in prepping for this talk. I, I went back and 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 watched some of um, another project of Keller's, which is which is editing together these video trailers that have been made around the world for new smart cities. Oh, which gosh. is a, a project that she worked on for her uh, for storefront for art and architecture. And again, it's just this sort of vaporwave, like pure affect, enthusiasm, and and no. Yeah. Uh, no ground at all. No, no really understanding of like, well, where's the plumbing and, and how, you know, how is that bus funded? And uh, so that's, that's really interesting too, because you have this combination of, of the ability to move around funding and influence and power, but how are the tubes under there working? Which is, that, that, that's always fascinating to me too. But if it's going to be great and if it's going to be huge, it's, it doesn't really matter. Does it really matter how, how the details work out? I we, love we can't to- give them away. So we should mention actually his name, this CEO, of the former CEO of Cheeseburger, who started the I Can Has Cheeseburger and Lolcat's entire enterprise, and who is now becoming the partner in this Y Combinator New Cities initiative. He, in the piece that he wrote for Medium that Fred's piece is responding to, where he kind of announces his role, 
in the New Cities Initiative. He anticipates all of the naysayers by this kind of like wonderful line that I love so much where he's like kind of being like, no, 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 I hear I hear you how you think this is like not something that is as you think we're going to take it too simply. But but I hear you. Here's what I say. To call a city a system or a platform underestimates the complexities. We'll be working on a project to develop a system for creating networks of systems. And that's his explanation for like, don't worry, guys, we got it. Like, we know you think we're underestimating the problem, but we actually just we figured it out already. So it's cool. And that kind of anticipatory judgment, that kind of like, I already know what you're going to say, and I already know what counterargument, and I already know that I'm going to be right about it. That's the kind of like frustrating points that I feel like cut the dialogue off immediately. So while we can totally give Benha the benefit of the doubt and think, oh my God, it could be so potentially positively disruptive and exciting to have someone like this involved in this kind of initiative, having that kind of attitude and in a way like mentality towards it does kind of bring another depressing note to it. <laughs> you can you can picture the boardroom in which that's like that sentence <laughs> is uttered as the kicker. It's the pitch meeting. It's the there's the the PowerPoint slide deck is on and that's where they that's what that's where they just hook you into into investing, right? Yeah, totally. Which might be why they never specifically say exactly what it is, because then they might lose potential investor imaginations of what this thing could be and miss out on yeah. Or the ability to pivot later yes, into something exactly. completely different too. Last night, as, as we were watching the uh, the election returns, one of the commentators on on NBC said something about, "Well, sure, post we're in the we're in the post fact era, sure, but we're also in the post policy era, at, where there's no need to actually say what you're going to do. You just you present more of uh, of a stance or uh, more of a you present a, you know a certain character, and it's assumed that that the details will follow on after that, which is also really fascinating too." Eddie Izzard foretold this. <laughs> How so? <laughs> if you ever look at one of Eddie Izzard's sketches, it's probably one of his uh, most famous ones. It's it's 10% of what you're actually saying and 90% how you say it. If you can convince people, make people believe that what you're saying is is like the thing. I mean, how do people get into MLM schemes? I was watching that over the weekend, you know, the multi-level marketing schemes, because the person on the stage is saying something that the people in the audience want to believe. But, you know, from a from a, a, you know, an objective observer as an objective observer, that what they're saying is an absolute fucking fabrication. But it doesn't matter because it's the 90 percent. It's the convincing you that you are going to be a billionaire. You're going to make millions of dollars if you do this. And so for him to be as, you know, as obfuscating as he is in this piece, it only plays, I mean, this is like, you know, this is Trump on Trump tripping. I mean, this is really what Trump is. And this, so they've kind of, they've seen the handwriting on walls. We don't have to be specific. Just trust us and that we're going to, this is going to be awesome. You're going to want it. You're going to love it. Which we've all done. We are, Architects are, are marketers, we too. To we've all it. done that in meetings, yeah. too, right? We have to do it. We but behind to. that is that expertise that, that Donna's exactly. talking about. And, right. and expertise doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anymore. This whole campaign and this, as it relates to the Silicon Valley discussion, is totally going to be just such a crazy case study in media law, media history, cultural studies, and not to mention all political, actual discourse. But just because, and I can't 
help but just see the parallels from this as so depressingly strong. And I, But I, I think I brought up this book on the podcast before. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics and is kind of one of the first thinkers around behavioral economics. And there's this one social science study that he cites in the book about how related to what Ken was saying, people are primed to trust their intuition over their actual reasoning. So their experience and their intuition are incredibly strong factors to leading them to be persuaded in one way or another. And one way to get people to feel that sense of intuition and feel that powerful sense of confidence in their own opinions and in their own emotions, as opposed to their own sense of reasoning, is to simply remind them of a time when they had power. It's like set out in this amazing social science study that I'll try to find the specific one. So if you just if you just remind someone of that time that they did the right thing by following their intuition or got that job because they did X, Y, and Z, and they feel that sensation of, oh yeah, that was me being in control. That was me being powerful. Then they are much more likely to trust their own intuition in that single other in- instance and to go forward with whatever that means. And I just like have this glowing image of the Make America Great Again hat in my mind whenever I hear or whenever I recall that anecdote and that kind of faction. And it just drives me up the wall and totally crazy and seeing it in such stark relief here. Cause I know I'm also subject to it as well. Like that's the, that's the irony or that's the sad part is like everyone is subject to these human flaws and such. So oh, we are going to be teasing this out for so long. It's going to be very interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, but here's the, here's the, here's the big problem, right? Uh, just to end this on from my standpoint, um, the piece I watched over the weekend about the, the multi-level marketing, one of the, um, one of the lawyers who was talking about what how this works is that there's like 14 levels. And when you've reached like 14 levels, you will have everyone on the planet bought into the system at that level. So there's like these tiers, these tiers. But by the time you get to that point, you've already enveloped the entire planet. So what happens? I mean, we're going to we're going to have trust me, we're going to have a golden period for Donald Trump. There's going to be this, you know, this like, oh, the, you know, the 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 shine is there. It's there. And he's going to walk into that office with all the positive feedback and all the good wishes of everyone because we want him to succeed because we need to succeed. What happens if he institutes everything he does or everything he says he's going to do? Start a trade war with China. What will happen is that we know that manufacturing will come back to the United States, but the jobs won't because it's going to be automated. What happens when they build these cities? Who are they building them for? Who's going to be in those buildings? Who's going to be sitting there? Because cities aren't just buildings. They have people who occupy them. Are, are declining. We have a declining population in the United States. People aren't having the babies that they did in the 1940s. What happens when the working class who had faith in the system realizes they put billions and millions and millions of dollars of their savings into this system only to find out on the other side of it, they've got what they call, I forget what they called it, a garage stock. They have stock full of Mary Kay products that they can't sell because they are buying it themselves and they're the ones who are making the company rich. So... What happens to those people? That's where the rural revolution is going to come. It's going to come from them. They're going to take Trump and they're going to put him on a pike. They're going to put his head <laughs> on a fucking pike and they're going to stick it on the front lawn. I mean, because if he doesn't come through with what he's promised, there is no God. <laughs> They'll finally realize that. And uh, the, the, the Trump uh, is... is emperor with no clothes and he will have led them down a very horrible path and it's all they're doing and that's the sad part of all of this well the new the new smart city will be optimized against uh pitchforks and torches so <laughs> <laughs> well thank goodness for that because yeah we, hey, friends, we, any space any space on your manatee uh space station yeah seriously <laughs> well, that's only for non-humans sorry <laughs> oh.
I'll get some kind of DNA change to go live there. Okay. Just, you know, inject me with some, make me a, make me a hybrid and I will go live. Yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't mind floating around. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's so great to, uh, to have everyone on and and talk about through this stuff in this time when we're all obviously a little bit on edge and dealing with these things. So thank you all so much. Thank you, Fred, for your very intelligent and very concerted response to this, this new development in, or I guess not totally new, but this particular iteration of Startup City. Thanks y'all for having me on. It's always great to talk with you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Fred, for joining us. And thanks to everybody out there listening to us. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcconnect.com and uh, rate us on iTunes if you feel like that's something worth doing. And I guess before we, we leave, we have our LA River talks coming up. Amelia, when are we starting to release those? Yes, hopefully those will begin airing on this coming Monday and you'll be first hearing the interview we did with Christopher Hawthorne, architecture critic for the LA Times, and Francis Anderton, the host of local NPR station KCRW's DNA design and architecture show. So yes, keep an eye out on the news and follow us for our connect sessions to get all of those individual interviews downloaded automatically. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week. Thanks, all. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, y'all.